buenos días a todos. Para hoy tenemos la, la música especial, la ciudad de Dios. Acts 2, you're supposed to understand that. <laughs> I think God gave them a gift of language, not my bad Spanish from over the years. But anyway, to start off on this wonderful day of Pentecost, we have special music from the chorale entitled, The City of Our God.
Well, that pretty much said it, I think. I don't know that I have anything really more to say. But we'll... Let's give it a shot anyway. This day represents a very, very important time in the history of Israel, in the history of the church, and we all certainly recall Acts 2 when great miracles occurred on that first day of Pentecost as Christ formed the New Testament church and gave it his spirit of power, which those disciples had not had to that point, and they took heart, they took power, courage, and strength from the events of that day and what God himself did on that day. Before addressing that, though, let's go back, because God says he is going to reintroduce some of the things from the past. And it's important that we consider those and to have them in mind because God is all-powerful. He's the sovereign of the universe. He can do anything, anytime He wishes. Let's notice Malachi 4. Malachi 4. <clears throat> he uses two men here. Uh, as an example of some things that are to occur at the end time. As you know, Malachi goes through and gives a story against the ministry, the modern ministry of today as well as the past. And then he talks about the wicked being burned up and the son of righteousness returning in chapter 4 and the wicked will be ashes under our feet. So this is very much an end-time prophecy winding up the minor prophets. And he says in verse 4, Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. So here he refers back to Moses, whom he called his friend, whom he did a great deal of work through, and says, remember the statutes and judgments of Moses. So he gives direction at the end of the Old Testament, at the end of the Minor Prophets, on how we are to think and to live. And he then says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So he refers back to a prophet of the past and says he is going to cause some of the same things to be done here at the end, before the day of the Lord. And we're poised very near that today. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, or the curse total wipeout, because at some point, some people have to be turned to God, or there's no point in this whole thing. So he says that will occur here at the end. Now let's go to Matthew 7, or 20, uh, 17, Matthew 17. 
And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before him, them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So here he's showing them a vision of the future, when he will return in his glory. So he, did, he appeared in that way before them, not fully, lest they die, but it was a transfiguration from just a man standing there to a man with great light and power that they recognized. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So the two just mentioned at the end of the Minor Prophets, which is a summation of all the events of the end time here, he mentions those two, and now to the disciples with whom he is about to begin the New Testament church, he has a transfiguration and a vision, and these two prophets from the past showed up there before the twelve, or before these three men. Uses the same ones. Then answered Peter and said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you will, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. They assumed the millennium was starting, that Christ had returned and was going to start ruling, and that it must be Feast of Tabernacles time, which pictures the millennium coming. So that's what they assumed. said, well, I guess we'd better build some booths. Because that's the only way they could interpret it. And while he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. They were not there to hear from Moses and Elijah at that point. They were to hear from Christ. And the Father spoke and said, this is my son, listen to him. Okay? And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And he said, get up, don't be afraid. And they lifted their eyes and saw only him. And then he told them, don't you tell this vision to any man uh, until I be risen again from the dead. So he let them know he was going to die, he would be resurrected, and this was to be kept quiet until that had occurred. They could tell it, they could speak of it later, which he did by writing it, uh, that this had occurred. So he's reintroducing, or is introducing, the New Testament church with a recap of some things that had happened in the past. Now, he gives them some more instruction in uh, John 14. Now, he was about to die at this point, and he was giving the final instruction, final sermon, if you will, of his time with them. And let's pick it up in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, 
and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Now, he had done some pretty impressive things. There had been people healed, uh, his shadow passing, people just touching his garment. There had been resurrections of the dead. And when he died, the graves were opened, and when he was resurrected, people came out of those graves, which was after this teaching. But he said, these things have happened, and if you believe him, then greater works will be done by you, speaking to the disciples here and those who would follow. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. That's his authority, his approval, uh, that was according to his will. If you ask those things, he will do them. Now, if you ask him to do something that is against his will, it's not going to happen. So we have to be sure that whatever we are doing at any time is within his will. And then what we ask of him... He says, I will do, because it is my will. We have to be in line with his will, in other words. If you start asking for things and you don't know his will, you're going to ask for things that don't apply, and they won't get done. Whatever you ask in my name, by my authority, I'll do it. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it, verse 14. Then he says, keep my commandments. So, we need to be obedient, and we need to understand his will, and know that he said this to the disciples after he had taken the three and showed him them things of the past. And the father had said, this is my son, listen to it. So, then he gives them more instruction here in chapter 14, well... Through 17. And they were to listen to him and pay attention because some of the very things that he had done, they were about to do. Okay? And that wasn't the end of the story. That was the beginning of the New Testament story that he told them these things would happen. Now, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can see by the things that he has done over time how he is, how he thinks, what he does. So we should find great similarities from the past and, let's say, the near past with the disciples and here at the end as well. They should all tie perfectly together. Let's examine that today. First, back to Exodus 10. I'm not going to go through all of this uh, for sake of time because there's too much for us to cover. Actually, it starts before that in chapter uh, 7. But let's look at some of the things of Moses because Christ brought Moses and Elijah forward. And as we saw in Malachi 4, at the end of the Minor Prophets, which are a summation of end-time things, he mentions Moses and Elijah again. So, if he mentions them, we need to pay attention to them. 
to what they did, to what they thought, to how God used them, because they're examples for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. And he told us that directly in Malachi 4 and Matthew 17. So, let's see. <clears throat> Moses was born under very interesting circumstances. His father and mother were slaves in Egypt or Mitzrayim. And he was protected from death. And not every baby got picked up by the princess of Egypt and hauled home and raised them in the courts of Pharaoh and taught them all the things of the Mitzrayim culture, as well as them being black and him being white. He saw what was happening to what obviously were his people as slaves. And I don't think Pharaoh was stupid to all this, because that was the land of Ham. And they were Mitzrayimites, which are of the tribe of Ham. So their slaves, their slave drivers, were black, and they were white. So it wasn't too hard to figure out when the princess brought a white baby into the palace, somehow where it had come from. Pharaoh understood that, and because maybe for his love for his daughter, he permitted it and had Moses raised right there in his courts. And then... Moses recognized that his people were being oppressed. And then when he saw one being oppressed, he might have kind of lost it and killed that Mitzriamite. And then he realized uh, when they brought it up the next day to him that he was in big trouble and he fled. And God kept him away from there for 40 years to learn some things and experience a different kind of life. And then he brought him back and says, I'm going to have you deliver my people. Now Moses might have wondered, how's he going to do that? And what God told him, I want you to talk to them. He says, well, I'm sorry, I have a speech problem, you know, I stutter or whatever it was. That I can't really do that. And God says, well, it's okay, I've prepared you. You don't have to talk. I'll let Aaron do that. That probably kind of went against his grain a little bit, too. Uh, maybe he had protested too much. So he kind of backed off. And later on, he did speak to Israel for certain. But what did God do with Moses? When you boil it all down, he absolutely destroyed a very high-level civilization that had huge buildings, that had much cattle, that had a very, very rich way of living, high standard of living. And God sent Moses and Aaron and talked to Pharaoh and told him his water would turn to blood. Ah, you guys are crazy. I'm kind of paraphrasing this. And then the waters turned to blood. And they had nothing to drink but blood. In the river, in the pots, in their house, wherever there was water, it had turned to blood. I don't think he just put some red dye, number three or four, whatever it is, in there. It turned to blood. And it began to coagulate and it began to stink. 
And it was an awful, horrible thing to have nothing but blood to drink. He followed that with a pestilence of frogs. Frogs seem kind of nice just hopping around in your backyard. But if they're in your backyard, in your food pot, and in your bed, and under your feet, and under your seat, uh, and there's frogs everywhere, that's disconcerting. It would be awful. Terrible. And then the frogs went away. And God let Pharaoh know through Moses and Aaron that then would come lice. Now that one bothers me even more than the frogs. This just gets worse and worse. Have you ever had lice on you? I've seen them crawling on the dogs and the cats over the years. And I've had a few on me. And then I've seen people who were infested with them. And that is a terrible, terrible thing. They itch, they crawl, they bug you. They're bugs. They bug you. Lice everywhere. So thick you can not see without lice before your eyes and crawling under your eyelids. Lice everywhere. And then pestilence came upon them. Terrible diseases that were killing people left and right. COVID doesn't touch it. Some things coming will, but that one didn't so far. And then what was next? Hail came. Huge hailstones that beat all the leaves, limbs off the trees, kill the animals in the fields. We hear once in a while about hail as big as a baseball or once in a while a softball or grapefruit. Uh, but it doesn't kill all the animals. I don't know how big those were, but they were killing the animals in the field, the big animals, knocking them down, knocking them out. Dead, death, all over the place. And then locusts. And then... After that, I wrote these down. Uh, oh, the darkness. Black, Stygian darkness. So black you could feel it. Blacker than we've ever felt. You know how sometimes you get a little unnerved when it's completely dark? Uh, people don't like it completely dark. Especially if they lived in cities. They don't like it dark. Because they've had street lights and lamp lights and car lights and building lights and lights all around. You take them out in the country and they start buying lights. I gotta have light. I gotta have light. It's just sort of built in. You take a country boy to the city and he's been living with starlight and moonlight and he gets to the city and he sees all these lights and he drives, and he drives him nuts. What are all these lights on for? I recently saw a house in Montana. Nobody around. The lady lives in Florida. The house is up in the trees. And she has the lights on day and night. Because she thinks it's going to keep intruders away. The guy that lives down the road from her says, those lights drive me crazy. He says, all she's doing is advertising that she's there. If she turned the lights out, nobody could see her house. It's in the trees. They'd never know she's there. But it's just the difference of where you grew up and what you're used to. Now, I like to see the lights of the stars and of the 
Boone. And then somebody over here for years has had a spotlight in their backyard. I mean a spotlight. I don't know if it's still on anymore, but it was for years. And you go out and try to look at the stars, and you're blinded by the spotlight. Kind of what you're used to, I guess. But this was so dark that it began to drive people crazy, insane. It was that dark. Not a peep of light anywhere. No stars, no moon, day and night, no sun. So they were on the verge of insanity at that point. And then God chose to kill all their firstborn children and firstborn of their animals. And some of the advisors to Pharaoh came to him and said, Don't you realize that this has destroyed the entire empire? There's nothing left. The plants are gone. The animals are gone, except the ones that were in the stalls or were protected. They did have war horses still to chase the Israelites later, but everything that had been out in the open was dead. The crops were destroyed. Everybody, every house, it says, had had a dead child in it. This was devastating. And they never recovered from it. They truly did. That was a very high-level black culture, and the world has not seen anything like that since. Totally destructive. Okay, that's just the beginning. Then what did Moses do? He took them out to the Red Sea, and God said, hold up your staff. And he did, and the sea parted with great wind, and it dried up overnight. And they're able to walk through the sea. you believe that? I do. I've seen the world that God has created. I see a chasm over here just south of us where it's been opened up and we call it the Grand Canyon. Who did all these things? Who made the Alps and the Rockies and the Himalayas? Who made the thundering seas that roar and crash on the beaches? I don't have any problem believing God can part water. I can't imagine it. I mean, how does that happen? But he did it, and he said he did it, and I believe what he said. So the sea literally parted, and they walked through. And then the Egyptians said, hey, if they can do that, we can too. So they drove their chariots down in there, and in came the water. And Israel was so thankful. Oh, they couldn't help themselves. They sang songs. Miriam came to the front and led them in singing and glorifying God at the incredible things that they had just witnessed. Can you imagine that you would ever get upset with God after what they saw? All of those plagues, most of them they watched. The death of the firstborn didn't affect them at all. 
But they heard the screaming and crying and grief and misery of those people who had lost their children. And then the sea opens before them and they walk through with no problem. And they see all those Mitzriamites drowned before their very eyes. You would think they would be convinced at that point and never have a second thought about how much God loved them, how He had delivered them, and how they could count on Him forevermore. Surely they would never forget that for 24 hours or so. And then they got thirsty. And then they began to curse Moses and God. You brought us out here in this wilderness to die. How quickly they pivoted from God, the great intercessor and deliverer, to God, the one that brought us out here to kill us. People are something else, aren't we? That we can forget so very easily what God has done. Now, he's about to remind us of some of those things. And I'm doing it today in part. So then, God told Moses, speak to the rock. You'll get water. I've seen lots of rocks. I've seen lots of rocks in the desert. And for all you could say to those rocks, it would be very, very difficult getting water out of them. And God honored it. Even though Moses got upset at the people, he struck the rock and God hadn't told him that. So he got in trouble and didn't get to go into the promised land because he hadn't done things exactly the way God said and wanted them to be done. As if by striking it, it was by his power. Had he just spoken to it and said, God, bring forth water. God would have brought forth water. And all credit would have gone to God. Now, do you and I speak to it, strike it, what's the difference? Ain't no water coming out of there unless God does it. But God wanted it to be known for absolute certain it wasn't by Moses, it was by him. He tells the rebel bell at the very end, same thing. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the eternal. You better do it my way. He didn't exactly do it God's way, and he suffered some consequences down the road for that. Not entirely severe consequences. He was a servant of God. You know, David broke God's laws at times. And he suffered some consequences. But he was a man who sought God and followed God. And those consequences did not wipe him out. God had mercy and forgiveness in spite of some of the things that were done. Because he was a man after God's own heart who generally did obey God. God will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy and he will not upon, upon whom he will not. So Moses did not do it exactly the way God said, but he spared him and showed mercy because of what had gone on before and what would also go on afterward. 
And you know the story. Then they got hungry. God sent manna. And manna was called what's it? And they didn't know what it was. But they ate it. It was good. But they liked meat. And it wasn't meat. So God said, okay, okay. I'll send you meat. And here come the quail. Thousands, millions of quail. There were possibly three and a half million people there. And it takes one more than one quail to feed one person one meal. There were absolute millions of quail. And perhaps fairly easy to catch. Most quail, you see, you don't catch very easy. <laughs> Maybe these quail were as thick as the lice in Egypt. I don't know. But they had meat to eat. <clears throat> you still believe in this story? All these things Moses did. God directing him and empowering him. And when Moses strayed a little bit, he got in a little bit of trouble. He got in a little bit of trouble over saying, I can't speak. And then he got in trouble for not speaking and striking instead. So, yeah, we can get ourselves in trouble with God. But we best be careful and not get in too much trouble with God. How much will he limit his mercy with you and me? He limited his punishments with these men of old. And he's limited his punishments with us, has he not? We all deserve to die. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But by his mercy, he sent Christ to forgive us, and he's showing us mercy. So what a wonderful God that is. So let's leave the story of Moses and go to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. Here a new man appears on the scene. Hasn't been around, hasn't been mentioned before. Elijah the Tishbite. His name meant, my God is Jehovah. That's what he had been named from a child. And he appeared before Ahab the king. And he says, there will be no dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, God obviously had instructed Elijah to go to Ahab and tell him this, because I doubt if Elijah would have dreamed up saying this without some instruction. You know, you go up to the king and say, it's not going to rain for these three, three and a half years, whatever it was, unless I say so. You'd better have some backing before you make a statement like that. Go up to a leader of this world. Well, I almost said Biden. He's not really a leader. Or Putin or somebody like that. And say, it's not going to rain unless I say so. You'll be in the nut house right away. They'll have straight jacket on you. Elijah was pre-programmed by God. And then God told him <clears throat> to go away and hide himself. Don't be here. Uh, you've told the king what's going to happen. Now go away. So he went to this brook. And he said God told him he'd get water there. And he didn't have to worry about food 
because the ravens would bring him food. Now that is really quite a miracle if you stop to think about it. I see ravens around. I've seen them all my life and none ever brought me food. Uh, they were afraid of me and they'd leave and they'd fly away and uh, weren't very friendly really at all. Still aren't around here. Uh, they're not going to help you out in any way. But they did that. And then the brook dried up because there was a drought and no rain because Elijah had said there wouldn't be. They had a real drought going. So, God told him, all right, I want you to get away from here. Still no rain. <coughs> Still a drought. A lot of people were beginning to die in Israel. So he went to this place. And here was this widow woman who was very, very skinny. She hadn't eaten much for a long time. And Elijah said to her, bring me some water. And she started to do that. And then he says, well, bring me a little bit of food, too. Make me up a little food. And she says, I don't really have any. All I have is enough to take two sticks and make enough food for my young son and I to eat, and then we're going to lay down and die because we are that close to starvation. She must have been absolute skin and bones when Elijah saw her. You don't go from plump to dying of starvation in one day. And then Elijah told her, Verse 14, For thus says the eternal God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the eternal sends rain upon the earth. And God had told him to go live with this young widow, with a child that was still young enough he could pick him up in his arms. And he says he dwelt in her house there, uh, in my margin, a full year. Now, it may have been actually longer than that, but it was a full year that he lived with this woman. Now, what a scandal that would have been in Israel. A move in with this young widow. I don't know how old Elijah was. Probably quite a bit older than her, I would assume, but I don't know that. And he was to live in her house with that young child for at least a year. And God said, go do that. I don't know what or did not happen in that house, but it was of God, and he caused the meal and the oil to last for that full year. And after these things, after a full year at least, the uh, son of the lady got sick, and he died. And she began to say, who are you? Now, how quick did she forget that every day she went to the meal barrel and the oil vial, and it was always there. Not much, but enough for the day, every day, for a full year. Because Elijah had told her that it would be that way, and yet, as soon as adversity strikes, we got no water to drink, Israel, remember? She begins to say, you must not be a man of God. You came here to cause my son to die. 
accused him immediately of killing her son. And all he had done for a year was keep him alive. So Elijah patiently gathered the child up, carried him upstairs where his bedroom was, and laid on him three times and asked God to revive him. And the spirit, the life, the breath came back into the sun. So he carries him downstairs now. And he's smiling. And he's happy. And, and his eyes are glowing with life instead of dull and dead. And his mother says, you really are a man of God. Wow. Now I believe. She'd just forgotten. And <laughs> now she believes. Verse chapter 18, it came to pass after many days that the word of the eternal came to Elijah in the third year. Now, he may have stayed there with her for two more years. Doesn't say, but that's just the end of the story until it's picked up the third year and God gives him some more instruction. He says, go to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So it had been three years without rain because Elijah had simply told Ahab that's the way it would be and it won't rain until I say so. So God waited till the third year and told Elijah now, we can have rain. Now Elijah must have believed God. He wasn't doing anything but marking time there. For three years with no rain. So he went to show himself to Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Israel. Well, no rain for three years. Severe famine. A lot of people had died by now. Even when Elijah first got there, the woman was about to starve to death along with her son. After he'd been out on the brook until it dried up. Anyway, Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now, Obadiah feared the Eternal greatly. For it was so, when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Eternal, that Obadiah took a hundred of them and hid, hid fifty in a cave, two caves, uh, along with another man, and preserved the prophets of the Eternal because Ahab, Asa, uh, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, had slain all the prophets of God that she could get her hands on. And that hundred escaped because of Obadiah primarily. And they had looked for grass and so on to keep the animals alive. So here Elijah shows up to Obadiah and says, Tell the king I'm here. And Obadiah says, Are you crazy? He's been looking for me all this looking for you all this time. He's gone everywhere trying to find you because you told him there wouldn't be any rain and there hasn't been and he wants to kill you. And if I go and tell him where you are, he's going to kill me too. And Elijah says, calm down. Don't worry about it. God will take care of this. You go tell Ahab that I will see him today. So Obadiah says, oh, okay, here I go. 
And then he appeared before Ahab, verse 17. And Ahab said to him, Are you he that troubles Israel? The lack of rain he blamed on Elijah because God had used Elijah as the human person to tell him that. It was God that shut off the rain, and it was God that was going to return the rain. But God always uses human instruments like he had Moses. He used Elijah here. And here's a man who had been trying to kill him all this time. And he says, are you the one that's troubling Israel? What did Elijah say? Now, when God tells us to be strong and of good courage here in the end, listen to this. He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the eternal, and you have followed Balaam. Now, therefore, send and gather to me all Israel to Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which sit at Jezebel's table. So he told the king, right face to face, who had been trying to kill him, you're the problem. Now I want you to bring all Israel to Mount Carmel and bring 850 prophets of Baal and Jezebel, your wife. So Ahab thought, hmm, a showdown. All right. We'll do this thing. So he brings him. Now Elijah came to all the people and said, verse 21, How long halt you between two opinions? If the eternal be God, follow him, and if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. They'd been thrown a challenge, and they didn't know what to do because they'd been worshiping Baal. And Elijah says, no, you're supposed to worship God. Now, let's make a decision. And they weren't ready for that. Oh, no, they just shut up. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the eternal, but Baal's prophets are 450 men plus the 400 of Jezebel's. So then he said, let's sort this out. He says, I want you to have these prophets of Baal bring Bullock, and I want them to sacrifice to Baal. And then I'll sacrifice to God, and we'll see what happens. So he says, you go first. If your God's the primary God, you go first. Show me what Baal can do. Well, all the Israelites had no problem with that because they worship Baal. So here come the prophets of Baal, get it all piled up there, have their wood, light a match, and then, then they began to ask Baal to burn up the bullock on the fire. And they prayed, and they chanted, and they danced. And it went from the time of the morning sacrifice till noon, three hours, and nothing had happened. So Elijah begins to goad them, mock them, it says. And he says, he must be traveling. Baal must be busy talking. Maybe he's sleeping. You need to wake him up. He doesn't hear you. Wake him up. 
So they began to yell louder and louder, and then they had religious rites where they cut themselves with knives, and they cut themselves and yelled till they were bleeding all over the place, and Baal didn't answer. So it came the time of the afternoon or evening sacrifice, about three in the afternoon. And Elijah says, well, it's been six hours, boys. How's it going? I think it's my turn. So he said, dig a pit, pour it full of water. Pour it full of water. Three times they filled it till the ditch was all full, and here was this drowned bullock in the middle of it. And Elijah stood back and called on the great God of heaven, and fire came from heaven and consumed the bullock, the wood, the water, everything was there. (coughs) Instantly, not six hours later. Elijah didn't have cuts and blood running. He hadn't had to yell himself hoarse. It just licked it up, just like that. And then he proclaimed loudly, Catch all the prophets of Baal. Don't let one of them get away. And they grabbed every one of them, and he took them down to the river, and he killed them all. Wow. Now, you want to worship Baal, or you want to worship God? Oh. Oh. That gives us a little different picture. So, that had all happened. And then Elijah uh, said to Ahab in verse 41, Get you up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. We've killed all the prophets of Baal here. God has shown his hand. Now there is a sound of rain coming. Of course, there was nothing happening at all. But when when Elijah said there won't be rain, there wasn't. Now he said there would be rain. An abundance of it, and you can hear this. Elijah could hear it coming in his mind's eye. Nobody else could. So anyway, Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel and put his face between his knees, and he told his servant, go over the hill, look at the sea, and see if you see anything. He comes back and says, no, not a thing, just blue sky is all I see. So he told him, do this seven times. Oh, seven times. Got to go up the hill. Tired of climbing the hill. This is my fifth time up. Seven times. Go up the hill. Look and see what you see. Seventh time, Elijah says, see anything? Yeah, a little cloud about the size of a man's hand. Elijah says, great. Going to be rain coming. And then there was... The heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode, went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Eternal was on Elijah, and he girded his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, that's where Jezebel was living. And then Jezebel 
tells Elijah she's going to kill him before the next day. This kind of scared Elijah. After all he had done, after all God had used him for, resurrection of the dead, stop the rain, start the rain, deliver from the prophets of Baal with an incredible miracle. And here this woman says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah says, I'm out of here. So he ran off a day's journey into the wilderness and lay down under a juniper tree and said, Oh God, let me die. Wait a minute. Why didn't you just stay and let her kill you if you want to die? No, it wasn't the way he wanted to die. But God, let me die and sleep with my fathers. I'm no better than them. Which is, in a sense, a good attitude. And as he lay there, an angel came and said, Arise and eat. So he ate. And then he laid back down and went to sleep again. And then the angel woke him up and said, uh, Rise and eat. The journey's too long for you. So he got up and ate again. And that was his last meal and his last water for 40 days. 40 days. Now, God had done the same with Moses, hadn't he? Forty days and nights without food and water. Did the same with Elijah. God was using these men for powerful purposes, and they had to be totally devoted to him. So we went to the Mount Horeb and went forty days and nights without. And then he thought he was the only one left to serve God. Says in end of verse ten, I even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the eternal, and behold, the eternal passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks. We've experienced some winds, even some here that did some damage. Hurricanes will damage buildings that men have made, but here was a wind that broke rocks. What an incredible, powerful wind. But the eternal was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the eternal was not in the earthquake. God showed great power here, but it wasn't great power in this instance that he wished to use. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the eternal was not in the fire. Wind, earthquake, fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. God can do things with great power, or he can do things in a very small, innocuous manner. Again, by his power, but not a show of great power. And then he wrapped himself in the mantle, and a voice came and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? I want to send you, because there's a war brewing, and I want you to anoint a king of Israel and a king of Judah, and I want you to uh, anoint Elisha, to be a prophet in your room, to be with him, to live with him, to be his prophet. <clears throat> and Elijah thought he was all alone. And God said, no, I've kept 7,000 back that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. 
wonder how many there will be here in the end time. Is it going to be 7,000 again? Paul mentioned the same number. Might be. And when he anointed Elisha, Elijah says, can I go back and say bye to my family? And he says, yeah, go. So he killed his oxen, which is the way he made his living, and burned all their gear in cooking them, fed his family, and then he went with Elijah. And then the Syrians are twice defeated by Israel. Uh, 230 princes, I don't have time to go through all this, and 7,000 men, verse 15. And the king of the Syrians was drinking himself drunk, and he heard about these people coming, and he didn't pay a whole lot of attention. He says, go kill them. It's no big deal. Or did he, this is where he said maybe bring them alive. Uh, there's not very many of them. Just bring them to me alive and I'll take care of them. Maybe that's where this was or maybe it's the next episode. Anyway, the children of Israel, verse 29, slew of the Assyrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city, and there a wall fell on 27,000 of the men that were left. 127,000 dead in one day. Now, God had started this whole episode with a still, small voice. And this was what came of it. Whether God speaks small, whether God speaks large, pay attention. <laughs> you never know what's about to follow. He starts things generally small. Moses, one man. Noah, one man. Elijah, one man. And so it goes. And then up against Jezebel again, and he told, told Ahab that he would die, and the dogs would lick his bones, eat him, and that his wife Jezebel would suffer the same fate. The dogs would eat her and lick her blood off the ground. And then that happened. Except it didn't happen quite that way to Ahab, even though God had said it. Notice here at the end of verse, chapter 21, verse 28. The word of the Eternal came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab humbled himself before me? Which he did. Verse 27, it says, When Ahab heard what was going to happen, he rent his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. Kind of shut him up, humbled him, scared him. So God says, Did you see what Ahab did? He humbled himself before me. I will not bring the evil in his days but in his Sundays, son's days, will I bring the evil upon his house. So God made a difference for Ahab because of his attitude. He changed his whole approach from one of arrogance, and I will do what I'll do, and I'll kill all these people. Bring them to me live. I'll take care of them. And God spared his life. He did the same thing uh, with Hezekiah. And I think with Herbert Armstrong. He says, you've sinned. You've done some things you shouldn't have done. 
But there will be peace in your life, and this will come when your sons, your evangelists, your preachers go out into the world. And there they'll be eunuchs. Just as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and others were castrated and became eunuchs. So did the ministry of Worldwide Church of God. But after Herbert Armstrong's death, because Herbert Armstrong did humble himself before God, and he was not a bad man, he was a man whom God had used, and there were some problems, but he says, I'm not going to bring it on you. After you're gone is when the trouble starts. On stage come the uh, Takashas, and it's all history since then. But God showed this. I think I better talk fast. Let's go to Acts 2. Now, Christ had told the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem, wait there, that he'd be doing some things. And uh, they sat and waited, along with the others who were, had been with them. And then the day of Pentecost was fully come in chapter 2, and they were all with one accord in one place. They were all in agreement. They were all together, meeting together for Pentecost. And suddenly, without provocation, without any uh, thing happening ahead of time or any instruction being given, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. Have you heard hurricanes? Have you heard tornadoes? I had one go right over my house in Miami. Picked up, went over the house, and sat down about a block away again. That was scary to hear that. That's the kind of wind we're talking about. And there appeared to them cloven tongues like fire, and it sat upon each of them. So, Fire comes into the room, or the appearance of fire, and then it sat on the top of each one of their heads. And they were looking at each other with really, really big eyes about, what's that on your head? We got wind, now we got fire. I don't know if they fell to their own head or not. I might have been scared to, looking at each other. What an awesome thing that must have been. And there appeared to them cloven tongues of fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they began to speak all the languages on the earth. <coughs> it's a miracle. They were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Every nation. Therefore, all languages were represented there. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were absolutely confounded. They heard every man hearing in his own language. And they said, these guys that are here, they're just fishermen and tax collectors. They're not learned. They haven't been to the colleges or the universities and learned all these languages. How could they do this? This is impossible. And yet there it was. These are just Galileans. And we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. 
And they probably spoke it a whole lot better than my Spanish. We hear it like we were born in it. An absolute miracle from God. People from all over the place. They were all amazed, verse 12, and were in doubt, saying, What is this? And some said, Ah, they just got to be totally drunk. You know, I've seen people who were pretty much totally wasted drunk, and I never heard them speak clearly in any languages except drunkenness. And I don't understand why you can say here much in your own language. There's a lot different. How could they accuse them of being drunk? They didn't speak like a drunk. They spoke it clearly in every language on earth. But Peter said, Nah, they aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning. This is what the prophet Joel spoke. Joel 2. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants, and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And he says, that's what's happening here. And, indeed, it was. Except it wasn't the final fulfillment. Because he goes on to quote more in Joel, and he thought that would happen then too. Because he said it. I'll show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Remember what he says here. In the end time, I will show signs and wonders, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. Pay attention. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And people will be converted. Now, that didn't happen. The first part did happen. They spoke in tongues. They dreamed dreams. They had visions. The apostles began to heal people left and right. People even came hoping Peter's shadow would cross over them that they might be healed. Things that Christ had done and said they would do, they did. And they even resurrected some from the dead. Paul did, Peter. Now God did the resurrection, but he used them as human instruments just as Christ had done the same thing. So they did just as great a wonders as Christ had done while he was here on the earth. Of course, he was in heaven directing this and causing it to happen. 3,000 were converted that one day. They were so absolutely, utterly impressed. And they saw signs and wonders being done. And then it went on. Another day, 5,000 were converted. And Peter told them, repent, and the times of restitution of all things would come. For Moses truly said, verse 20, to the fathers, a prophet shall the eternal your God raise up to you of your brethren, like me, 
Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say to you. That's the end of chapter 3. And it goes on with signs and wonders, and they spoke with great boldness. And uh, verse 33, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And they even shipped in everything they had so that everybody would have plenty to eat. And Ananias and Sapphira rebelled against that. And just as in Moses' day when those rebelled against Moses and were swallowed up in the ground, Ananias and Sapphira died on the spot and were drug out by their feet because they didn't do what the apostles had told them they needed to do. We need to have our ears tuned very, very well to what God has to say. Are you beginning to get that picture here a little bit? Through Moses, through Elijah, through the apostles? And great wonders, signs and wonders, verse 12, were worked among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and of the rest, dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And then they brought the sick into the streets, verse 15, laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And people were healed left and right. Now that is what Christ did at the beginning of the New Testament church. Let's move on from there. To Zechariah 3. Here we have Haggai and Zechariah talking about the end time church. They discuss the former church under Herbert Armstrong. And then they discuss the new temple being built under the two witnesses and how it will be of much greater uh, substance and power and overshadow what was under what we experienced before. Then he says in verse 8 of chapter 3, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for they are men of wonder. For I will behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. So, this is prior to Zerubbabel showing up, done with Joshua and the people that were there with them, with him. And that there would be men of signs and or wonders, as my margin says that should be translated. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes, seven angels of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. We've been going now over 30 years with having been spewed, confused, frustrated, and abysmal spiritually. And God is going to remove this curse that we have been under in one day. And He's going to show signs and wonders in the church again. And it will cause people to wake up. It will stir them to come, as Haggai says, and work in the temple. So that's how God starts this. 
This one stone will have seven eyes, the eyes of the churches on it. Who's the stone? It's not Joshua. It's not Zerubbabel. It's Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the main stone. The eyes of the seven churches will turn to him because he starts working through two men here to accomplish his purposes. And they will see the things that he does through them. And the men who sit before them with the signs and wonders that are done. Now, we've read about signs and wonders today already, have we not? Did you believe them? Do you still believe them? Did you forget it the day you got a little thirsty? Did you forget it the day your son died? And you began to question whether Elijah was there from God, even though you had been eating for a full year already, and probably continued for two more at least. How quickly we can forget. Now God says these things are coming again. All these things that you and I have examined today are coming again. And they're going to start with some signs and wonders that are going to cause Zerubbabel to be revealed for who he is. Then you will have the two on the scene. Now, where does it go from there? It says there in Zechariah 4, they will teach all these people who come the things that they need to be caught up on, the things they haven't learned yet, the things that Worldwide never knew yet. They'll be taught those things. Oil will be given out by the two to all seven of the lamps. Let's go quickly here then and wrap this up in Revelation. Let's go to chapter 11. Now John had been speaking to the little flock. There was not much left of the early New Testament church by this time. It had started out with great power, with wind and tongues of fire and languages and miracles and the shadow passing, healing people, and resurrections had occurred. But now there had been a great falling away. How could that happen after all the things these people had seen? God says here at the end, there will be a great falling away. How has that happened after all that we had seen and learned. How? But it has. So, this little flock that John was speaking to as he revealed the book of Revelation, God said to him <coughs> in the chapter 10, there's got to be more preaching done. You must prophesy again to Many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Well, all the other apostles had been martyred, killed. He was the only man left standing. And he was old, way up in his 90s. And God says, it's got to be done again. And John must have thought, oh my, how's that going to happen? And, as it turned out, it wasn't him that needed to do it, but it had to be done. Herbert Armstrong thought it was him that had to do it. And he never got it done. He called a lot of people, yes, with a calling work. But he didn't preach the gospel to all the world and then the end come, because here we are 30-some years later and it still hasn't happened. 
and he's been long dead. So he gives a vision to John of what will happen, and he says, Measure the temple of God and the altar, and then the worship therein, but the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. It's given to the Gentiles. Would be for 42 months, it says. So, what do the two witnesses do? Zechariah 4. They go to the people that God stirs to come and teach them what they need to do to get them up to speed about building the temple and building Jerusalem and being a witness to the whole world. That's what they do first. And then after that is done, verse 3, I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Twelve hundred sixty days. Otherwise it's stressed... uh, said as three and a half years or 42 months, all three. Got to have a 360-day year then for that to happen, for all three of those things to occur. So we're going to have a miracle in the heavens that will change it from 365 and a quarter to 360. Believe that? Got to happen. This prophecy has to be fulfilled. God and His Word are inviolable. Anything He says is going to happen. So we're going to have a 360-day year again, real shortly now. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. The only other place those two are mentioned is Zechariah 4. So it has to be the ones God is speaking of there in Haggai and Zechariah. He's spoken of them as Moses and Elijah. Then he uses the example of Haggai and Zerubbabel, who were there for the building of the temple and the wall of Jerusalem. Because that's part of the job here at the end time as well. So he uses different people as analogies toward what will happen here at the end. If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Didn't I tell you to keep an eye, keep an ear open? There in Acts 2, here's fire. <laughs> here's Ananias and Sapphira struck dead. These are things that happened in the days of Moses and Elijah and the apostles. And they're going to happen again to a small group of 10% of what was in the church. Maybe 7,000. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. Maybe more. I don't know what God is taking 10% from. He knows. Anyway, they have power, can you believe this, to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Any question why God uses the old prophet Elijah as a type of what will happen at the end? They can stop the rain. Believe that? You believe any man can stop the rain? Or start the rain? Try the U.S. government. Try the U.S. Russian government. They, to a degree, have power over the weather through Satan, who is the prince of power of the air. (coughs) They manipulate the weather today. God is going to give absolute power to His two against them. Just like Moses and and, uh, 
Aaron before Pharaoh. Same deal. Only he's going to give these two men more power than Russia, the United States, France, Canada, and everybody else combined. That it rained not in the days of their prophecy. That's three and a half years. About the same as with Elijah. There one year, the drought continued, three years at least, and then he said, let it rain. And it rained. Same thing. It was given to him to make war with the saints. Oh, I flipped two pages. I didn't mean to. Power over waters to turn them to blood. You wonder why he used Moses before Mithraim? Turn the water to blood. He's going to be doing the same things that Moses and Elijah did. Same things that the apostles did. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the things we read about, which were incredible today, are going to happen again. Fire, blood, smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Pull any plague out of Exodus and they can do it. Or any other one. All plagues will be unleashed on the earth. And they shall have finished their, when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And they're going to lie in the streets of Jerusalem where Christ was killed for three and a half days. And the world is going to party thinking that they have won. They're going to see all these incredible miracles that Israel saw and denied God and cursed Him and Moses. All the incredible things that Israel saw and denied Elijah and Elisha and went back into Baal worship. All the things the apostles did. Raising the dead. That's going to happen again here in the end time. All those things that happened back then are going to happen again because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's going to happen, brethren. And you're here as believers in God, not those who don't listen and will turn from Him at the moment any adversity strikes. Endure to the end and you shall be saved. We have had some adversity. I believe we will have more adversity. That is the pattern that Christ has always used as well, right? And when adversity strikes, some people turn from God, and others humble themselves, even as a wicked king Ahab did, and God showed mercy. And he tells us there in Zephaniah 2, before this great financial crash and the invasion of the armies, gather in the wilderness, and if you will be humble and meek, maybe God will protect you. If King Ahab could surrender and bow before God, so can you and I. We need to walk with God. It says of a few in Scripture, they walked with God like Enoch. You know what's hard to do? 
to walk in all the footsteps that Christ made while He was here, to do just as He did. But do you realize it is not blasphemy to walk with God? It is the example that is given to us to do that. We are to walk as Christ walked. We don't have to say, well, those were righteous men. They walked with God. God tells us to walk with Him. You know what that means? It means that if those people were righteous and walked with God, then we need to become the same thing and become righteous and walk with God. That's not blasphemy. That's instruction from the Almighty God. And we will do wonders and signs greater than Christ did when He was on the earth and greater than Moses and Elijah and Peter, James, and John. And the day of Pentecost is all about that.